Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is none other than Jeffrey Eugenides. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's right. I'm uh, playing my theme music. And I'm playing a little <laughs> rumbatica back there. I like whenever, whenever I enter a room. I want, <laughs> <laughs> want some rumbatica <laughs> yeah, music right. to get you in. Well, yes, please welcome Jeffrey Eugenides, author of The Virgin Suicides and Middlesex, which was the recipient of the Pulitzer. And uh, you're working on some other stuff now, which we may talk a little bit about to the extent that you're willing to do as we go on. All right. But um, but you've published stories in The New Yorker and other places and um, have been at this for a while with great success. It's <laughs> such a thrill to have you. It's going better now than it was 20 years ago. But yes, it's going. <laughs> when you were sitting, <laughs> I understand you worked at the American Academy of Poets. I did. That, I worked for four years, I was the secretary for the for the president. And the president was sort of the great benefactor of, of the academy, and my job was to basically ferry l- her letters down to her Park Avenue apartment, take dictation from her, and come back. And when I wasn't doing that, I was secretly writing the Virgin Suicides in my office. With your toggle switch. <laughs> With my toggle switch. Yes. In the early days of toggle switches. Well, I wonder if you would start us off, as we usually do on the show, with a little bit from your book. Oh, sure, sure. This is from Middlesex. Emotions, in my experience, aren't covered by single words. I don't believe in sadness, joy, or regret. Maybe the best proof that the language is patriarchal is that it oversimplifies feeling. I'd like to have at my disposal complicated hybrid emotions. Germanic train car constructions like, say, the happiness that attends disaster or the disappointment of sleeping with one's fantasy. I'd like to show how intimations of mortality brought on by aging family members connects with the hatred of mirrors that begins in middle age. I'd like to have a word for the sadness inspired by failing restaurants, as well as for the excitement of getting a room with a minibar. I should add that, sadly, that excitement does not attend me here in Ann Arbor. My room is minibarless. Minibarless. Yes, that's another word. (laughs) The sadness of having a room without a minibar. I've never had the right words to describe my life, and now that I've entered my story, I need them more than ever. I can't just sit back and watch from a distance anymore. From here on in, everything I'll tell you is colored by the subjective experience of being part of events. Here's where my story splits, divides, undergoes meiosis. Already the world feels heavier. Now I'm a part of it. I'm talking about bandages and sopped cotton, the smell of mildew in movie theaters, and of all the lousy cats and their stinking litter boxes, of rain on city streets when the dust comes up and the old Italian men take their folding chairs inside. Up until now, it hasn't been my world, not my America. But here we are at last. You want me also to do this paragraph where it goes into the Desdemona? Okay. The happiness that attends disaster didn't possess Desdemona for long. A few seconds later, she returned her head to her husband's chest and heard his heart beating. Lefty was rushed to the hospital. Two days later, he regained consciousness. His mind was clear, his memory intact, but when he tried to ask whether the baby was a boy or a girl, he found he was unable to speak. 
I see what you wanted that last bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, there you go. So here we have, a, I've heard you describe it as a comic epic mm-hmm. uh, story of about a hermaphrodite told from, um, in the first person, from the hermaphrodite's perspective, Callie, um, or Cal, mm-hmm. Stephanie. He writes the book as yes. Cal at the age of 41 as a, a Berliner, an American living in Berlin. And he has to go all the way back to his grandparents. So Desdemona and Lefty, who you mentioned in that last passage, um, immigrated from uh, Turkey. From, from Yes, from, from Asia Minor, right around the time when Turkey became a, a nation state in 1922. And took mm-hmm. over this part that had been occupied by Greeks. Right. For some time. For some time. <laughs> for some time, yes. And then the story begins. So the first bit of the book is told before your, our narrator's even born, and then we launch into um, our narrator... I mean, it's told retrospectively, mm-hmm. so he's mm-hmm. in Berlin going mm-hmm. back. Um, but one of the reasons I wanted you to read that particular passage, in addition to the sort of, was he a boy or was he a girl, I couldn't speak mm-hmm. place that we leave lefty, is um, in an interview right about the time the book came out, I believe it was an interview with Powell's bookstore, um, you are, were quoted as saying, if I were an emotion, I'd be longing. Yes, I regret I regret that <laughs> statement. Has it been thrown it at you for Portland, years? It was in Portland. You know, anything you say in Portland, you should not have to answer for all the time. Um, it just sounds, when I hear that, you know, if I were emotion, I'd be longing. I suppose it, it does relate to my work. Obviously, The Virgin Suicides is a kind of a fever dream of a novel, and and the narrative voice from these from these boys who are obsessed with the Lisbon girls is, is full of longing. But, um, you know, I can't really... Say for myself, if I were emotion, I'd be longing. Like, the older I get, I'm just getting grumpier. I you're guess, getting grumpier. Well, if you were a crayon, would yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> well, as we said, Bert Sienna. Bert definitely, Sienna, yeah. of course. Um, I'm going to have to drop the crayon stick now. Everyone yeah. knows that that's my throwaway is question it, before okay. the before the the show starts when we do sound check. Um, well, the reason actually, I'm. I, what was interesting to me about this is that you talk about these complicated emotions as if they were they were German, and it's not just longing or love or any of mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And this story is a particularly complex story. Um, and you said earlier today in a in a little confab around the the table in the Hopwood room that um, you are interested in normalizing the freaky. Mm-hmm. Um, are you drawn to things that are sort of outside the sphere of what we? call normal and then to want to sort of make them into, complicate them in ways that makes them normal? Or is it some other process that happens? Um, we have five sisters who commit suicide in the prison suicides, but that's not told as some like grand, crazy, awful thing. Um, it's told as a much subtler tale mm-hmm. in a neighborhood in Gross Point. And then this book told from the perspective of an intersexual um, is not this crazy uh kind of story. It's a family saga mm-hmm. over the course of three generations. Right. Well, I, you know, I guess when I say something like I, I try to normalize the, the freaky, um, that you know, comes at a time when I'm trying to explain my, my work after the fact as, as, an, as an author um, being questioned. While I'm, while I'm writing things and when I'm drawn to material, I, I don't question myself or, or psychoanalyze myself. I just... Um, you know, I, 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 certain ideas, certain stories and plots appeal to me, seem to have a lot of potential to them, and I, I respond to that without thinking, um, thinking why. And I, I guess with the version suicides, um, I did, I did meet a young girl who, who told me that she and all her sisters had tried to commit suicide. So it, you know, it came from an actual uh, event, and I, I didn't know her very well. But that, that seemed like, a, 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 you know, pregnant with a lot of drama, obviously, and 
and it stayed with me. And um, similarly with, with Middlesex, um, I'd read other accounts of people who, who, who uh, had changed, uh, changed sex. I, I read Michel Foucault's book um, that came out in English in, in the 80s, Herculine Barbat, Memoir of a 19th Century French Hermaphrodite. And I read it just because I thought this would be, must have been an amazing account of someone's life. Um, that book actually was fairly disappointing um, in the reading because it didn't tell me all the things I, I wanted to. So I was disappointed with the book and decided to write my own to answer, oh, uh, you know, f- f- satisfy my curiosity about it. Um, so I'm, I'm never aware that I'm taking, you know, a subject matter that's a little bit odd um, because it Im- immediately appeals to me. I guess I, I don't want to read the same kind of story all the time. And when I come across something a little bit unusual, I, I like it. But in my treating of this, I, I never try to make it outlandish. I try to make it believable, and I always—I'm actually a realist in a way—and um, and I, I try to ground it in, in, in the greatest reality. And that's why Middlesex is really not about a hermaphrodite. It's about this family, and, and the hermaphrodite who tells the story is, is only—he's just well suited to tell this story where so many people are changing their identity through uh, through marriage through immigration in various ways so my idea was to write a much bigger story and and have his um his own you know oddity just actually beneficial for his narrative capabilities yeah um i think you also may have said something about um writing stories uh changing with the decades um and earlier today in your talk. Um, and so I'm wondering if we can kind of talk about the time then when you were writing these two books. So The Virgin Suicides, um, which years would you have been writing? I wrote The Virgin Suicides some probably between 1989 and 2000, I mean 1999 and 2002. And no, 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 19... 1989 and, and, and uh, 1992. 92. Yep. And then Middlesex would have been? That was, well, technically that was 2004 to 2001, something like that. Came out in 2002. But I f- Wait, 94 to 2001. What did I say? Yeah. 2004. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I was, it's all a little bit of a, of a <laughs> fog when I was writing. Yes. Right. But no, so 1994, 2001. So late 80s to early like 80s for Virgin Suicides and then um, the 90s for... Late 80s, early 90s for, for, for the first one. Yes. Yeah, and then right. uh, the rest of the 90s right. for the... For the middle sex. Yeah. Okay. So you were kind of raised on a diet of postmodernism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're coming through college at Brown, right? Which, um, in the the early '80s, and then at Stanford mm-hmm. um, in the sort of mid '80s, and uh, went back for a dose of um, 19th century lit after that. Mm-hmm. The time of the late '80s and the the most of the '90s in the U.S. anyway, there's a lot of stuff about identity politics and about um, sort of, uh, it's the time of, well, when the Virgin Suicide, there was Madonna. Mm-hmm. And by the time we get to the late uh, 90s, we're into techno. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could sort of relate the time periods in which you were writing to the novels you chose to write. All of my, I, I predate all that in my, in my soul. In my, I have nothing to do with Madonna or, or techno. What it goes back to, a book like Middlesex, goes back to glam rock in the 70s. And um, you know, I think there was a, there was a time 
when I was a, a teenage boy trying to figure out how to to be a man or more manly, what masculinity is. And at the same time, that involved that was you know accompanied by the unisex movement, where where suddenly all the signs went up in the hair shops where men and women were getting their hair cut the same way. I mean, that was the that was the first time it was happening. It was very big. You had David Bowie dressing androgynously. You had Lou Reed going through his androgynous phase. And um, that's probably what, what affected me more than things that might be um, contemporaneous with the publication of, of um, either Virgin Suicides or Middlesex. It goes back to my, my teenage years. Um, everything was up for grabs in, in the 70s. Men were trying to be sensitive. Men, women were, were really you know storming into the workplace, and no one actually knew what it what it meant to be a, a man or a woman. I'm sure that's um, those kind of questions were were, were partly f- what fueled the writing of Middlesex. That was the era, I think, of the New Age sensitive man. Do you remember the books, or was it was there something? That I remember I remember um, being told that I should be a sensitive male and trying my best until I realized actually that it seemed like all the girls didn't like the sensitive men. And I, I'd ruined like 20 <laughs> so years of being You went back to being sensitive. the macho man. No, I never, I never succeeded in that either. But <laughs> <laughs> we should have gotten more, you know, more rewards for our sensitivity. It seems to me for trying. Yeah, anyway. I think so. <laughs> was what we were asking for. <laughs> um, all right. Well, it's about time for a little short break. Okay. So we're going to do that. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Jeffrey Eugenides. We'll be right back. This is Ashley David. You're listening to The Living Writer's Show. That was Artie Shaw with Begin the Beginning. I, I do have an anecdote connected to Artie. Please, tell I, us about Artie. Well, um, Middlesex is mostly not autobiographical, and but a few a few things are. And one of the things that I sort of expanded on was um, a story of my, my parents. Growing up, my father um, wooed my mother by playing his clarinet over the phone to her in her in her rooming house. And he used to play... He loved Artie Shaw. I'm not sure if he played Begin the Begin, but I always heard that that's how he got her. He, she would pick up the phone, and she would hear him playing pretty disastrously <laughs> um, some sort of Artie Shaw number, and I expanded on that to a much wilder wilder scene, but that's where that comes from. And that's so in the book, um, Cal's parents um, get together over Artie Shaw and Begin the Begin. Right. He does a little more with his clarinet than play it, but nevertheless. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does indeed. Y'all have to read it to find out what he does with his clarinet. Well, um, I wonder, you have written here this book, Middlesex, which has won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, 550 is the page count I think we come in at. It's a big, nice, epic, um, large, large book. And uh, this is the era of the soundbite, um, the, in the U.S. anyway. Folks are into um, text messaging. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can't even have a conversation anymore. It's like, let's text message, you know, run 
here and there. Um, and uh, I've heard you speak a little bit about your sort of love for books and narrative. And um, although you're interested in your uh, sort of a, a love affair with uh, narrative and a taste for postmodernism or something like that, mm-hmm. I think you you said a little bit something along those lines. You want me to explain? Yeah, would you? Well, it's just um, I am. Um, I'm I'm sort of torn between a love of of the postmodern literature I grew up with, um, from Pynchon through Robert Coover and then Barthelmain and writers like that, where um, it was pretty much uh, standard practice to foreground the fact that you're telling a tale and to sh- to show the gears and the machinery of of fiction writing. I, I'm I'm torn between loving that and also loving also. Uh, old-fashioned narrative, and my work has tended to be a, a fusion of, of those two things. It occurred to me, um, you know, there's two ways to, to try to make something new in in art, and one of the ways is to just push the experimental extremes as far as you can. Now, for literature, that might be um, writing books like Robe Grier wrote, where, where you, you, you start to write novels where the characters do not stay consistent they turn into other people without you know you're, you're telling the reader or or maybe you do it by not using any punctuation you know experimental um uh, you know i don't know attempts to create something new the other way you can make something new is by combining two forms and that's how music usually works you think of blues and rock and roll all those things came to be because they they took two dis- two different styles of music and and fused them and got something else it it occurred to me when i was writing middlesex that maybe one way i could try to do something new was to combine two different literary um schools of thought one being postmodernism and one one being traditional realistic narrative and if i could if i could unite those and and blend them perhaps i would get something um different because i saw that for me i saw no way to um ex- become make something new just experimentally i wasn't going to monkey around with um a novel the way james joyce did because he pushed it just about as far as i think it can get get pushed so i I, i'm always looking for some other way and that's that's what i've come up with so far so in doing that you came up with this epic um and um I've talked to a couple of folks who are teaching it to undergraduates here at mm-hmm. the University of Michigan, and um, their students love it. They just think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And there's all this stuff in the um, sort of buzz of the time which says nobody reads anymore. Who reads? You know, why read? And then, you know, here we have folks who are handed um, a, a very long book, and that's what people look at first thing is how many pages mm-hmm. do you have undergraduates when in, in some classes um, do that. And and I'm wondering if you'll talk a little bit about how you see um, books living in this moment and, and the books you want to write and um, all this stuff about um, books don't matter anymore. And, and kind of um, the way I've summed that up is to talk about let's map the American attention span. Mm-hmm. Why, how is there room in this moment of sound bites um, for settling in with a good, long, lovely mm-hmm. epic. Well, I, I, I worry about that the way everyone does and every writer does. I certainly, you know, when TV came out, people worried about TV killing reading, and and um, now with the Internet, we worry about it again. I think actually most of the writers I know are more worried about 
the internet and in, 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 as opposed to TV for killing the attention span. Uh, are for, we technophobes, or is there a particular thing that folks have latched onto that it says that the internet will kill books? Um, no, it just seems like people are spending a lot of time. You know, people are always talking on the phone now or doing their emails. Just the amount of time, even in in my life, that seems to get eroded in, in, into that. But let me take a turn in my answer. Um, it I've been told my whole life that the novel is dead and reading is dead, and and it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, I I'm constantly amazed at. Um, you know the number of readers my own work has has gotten never expected it to be like that and you know the a book like middlesex may i think maybe it seemed longer in in hardback than paperback but it, i always thought of it as an energetic boisterous book and i don't i don't think um it was ever conceived as a, as a kind of slog now if it was a real slog for 500 pages i'm not it could be a, it could be it could be a problem um but you know it, it People are still reading a lot, and I don't think books are going are going away. And I'm, I'm gratified by that. I'm still, you know, worried like like everyone is, and I worry about the critical culture too, um, even more than than the readership. But it's, it is amazing how many young people, as well as older people, are, you know, still count novels as their main source of pleasure. Critical community. What what are you worried about there? Um, there, there used to be slightly more normative critical community, and the, there weren't so many books coming out, so that in a way people could people could read everything and know what was going on. And so, if you had a body, and like, what happens now is you meet someone, you say, "Oh, I read this book. It's great. Have you read it?" And the person says, "Oh, no, I haven't read that one. I read this great book, though. Have you read?" It? And, uh, no, I. So you, you never have this culture, this literary culture, where everyone has common knowledge. And without that, you tend to just get a lot of you know distant fireworks from different people, but not a, a sense of really where literature is going and, and what's happening with it at a certain time. You know, the, there's a lot like niche markets for for all literature, and and as our society is in general, it's kind of de, you know really decentralized. And do you think that is the sort of responsibility or fault of the critical community, or or does it have something to do with the way market forces are? And uh, I mean, sort of large booksellers versus small community bookstores. I mean, uh, is there a particular place where you would locate the the breakdown, and would it be the critical community? I mean, it happened for a number of reasons. It, it happens. It's true that books started to get marketed to different communities. So now, in the bookstore, instead of just literature, you you might have. Um, Books that are supposed to be I, I know um, certain uh, Hispanic writers have complained to me that their books will be in the Hispanic section instead of the section where where the new novels are out. So I mean you have this splintering just in the bookstore um, and that's trying to appeal to the different markets. But what it does is it it it, it cordons off certain certain work so that you're, you're only supposed to read that if you're interested in Hispanic literature instead of it, you know being centralized. Um, it's it's that way with uh, with every kind of product in the United States, not just books. So that's one of the forces that's doing it. The other force is is just the expanding population, and um, it's it's almost impossible to read everything that's coming out now. So that that is um, fairly inevitable. And there is for good, or or you know for for, for 
for ill or for, or for or for good, there is a um, lessening of a kind of critical hegemony, maybe emanating from from the East Coast, where where there were some people who were sort of in charge of separating the, the the wheat from the chaff and and giving you some sense of what needed to be read and then everyone consulting those journals and those those critics and then reading those books and everyone having a conversation about it that you know it's it's more democratic now which is good but on the other hand you do find that no one is reading this, the same number of books and it's it's difficult to get a kind of good old literary conversation going as they used to do at those partisan review parties in the 1950s, <laughs> but perhaps I'm mythologizing times in which I didn't live. And why not? Why not? <laughs> let's, let's go for it. The good old days before now. Um, well, I wonder, You, I believe it was in an interview that you d- gave with um, Jonathan Safran Foer um, that you talked about new voices and where new voices would, would come from. And I believe you said that Grace Paley sort of guessed it right, that a lot of new voices might come oh, right. from way, this is way back, you know, back right, in the good right, old days right. when they were talking about literary conversations. And the, um, well, she, and you know, I'm trying to, I, I think she, you were saying something about how um, essentially voices would come from communities that hadn't been heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here we now have marketing, we've got the Hispanic books over here mm-hmm. and the Africa books over here mm-hmm. and then the literature books over here in a very unmarked category with mm-hmm. the exception of being called literature. Um, is that an outgrowth of this sort of explosion of new voices and and the identity politics that um, picked up steam in the in the 80s and 90s or um, or is it just sort of market? Well, the, the Grace, I, I read an, it was an old, um, they had a panel back in the 80s with Grace Paley, Bartholomew and some other people, and um, they were asking what would be the new, the, the new voices, and a lot of the guys like Bartholomew were predicting um, new voices to come, basically for literary theoretical reasons. And Grace Paley said, "No, I think the new voices will be women and and certain certain minorities." And she's right. I mean, she's right. That's what we've been reading the last ten or fifteen years. Those are the writers that have come in. And and the content that they've brought to the novel is what has interested the readership mainly. So I mean, she was just she was correct in in her in her assessment. Um, in terms of what it's doing, I mean, is the old guard out there, the literary old guard on the East Coast, not knowing what to do with all these voices now? Is that part of why no, I mean, those, we don't have a canon? Or those voices are the canon now. I mean, um, for instance, my friend Jhumpa Lahiri, who would be considered. Um, a new voice, Indian American wrote the woman interpreter of wrote the interpretive maladies. I go. Um, she just came to Chicago. She won the one Chicago one book um, prize, and everyone in Chicago is reading her book. And I, I meet all these high school students when they read about literature. She is, you know, she's in their in their textbooks, sixteen year olds textbooks. I mean, she those, that's the that's the canon now. That's the, the people who have been recognized have been brought and brought in. So I mean, Grace Paley was was correct. Um, so we've just got a lot more folks and nobody saying that. I mean, sort of saying. I mean, because if we've got folks, if we've got Jhumpa Lahiri and sixteen-year-old textbooks, yeah. high school textbooks, right. then there is somebody still saying, "Here's what we should read," but we're not having the conversations that we had in the in the good old days. Let me see if I can draw this together. What um, ob- you know, obviously, 
Grace, that Grace Paley was right is is good. That new voices coming in, but the fact that it splinters at a certain point. There shouldn't be the Hispanic literature section. There should be one section for literary novels, and it sh- it shouldn't be divided and ghettoized in that way. And um, and that that is what sometimes tends What's to happening. happen. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't. It does obviously has not happened with Jumpa because so many people read her. But it happens to people who are not as fortunate. And, as she to get that much uh, attention. Well, even somebody as famous as Wally Soyinka, um, mm-hmm. I went looking for his new memoir mm-hmm. in a small bookstore and uh, that I appreciate very much, and uh, it was not in the literature section with all the other really, yeah, literary yeah. nonfiction and yeah, fiction. Right. It was in the Africa section. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, the system of categories is actually complicated. <laughs> Well, Richard Rodriguez is the one who complained to me about this. You know, oh, really? Because he, he goes into the bookstore. He says, your, not your book's in the front table. Mine's over here. And, he, you know, and it's, he's right. He's you know. right. Yeah, I think. He's right. Well, we'll pause there. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Jeffrey Eugenides. We're talking about his book, Middlesex, The Virgin Suicides, and literature in general. We'll be right back. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, Jeffrey Eugenides, is about to read a little bit more from his novel Middlesex, and then we're going to take it on home to Detroit. Grow up in Detroit, and you understand the way of all things. Early on, you are put on close relations with entropy. As we rose out of the highway trough, we could see the condemned houses, many burned, as well as the stark beauty of all the vacant lots, gray and frozen. Once elegant apartment buildings stood next to scrapyards, and where there had been furriers and movie palaces, there were now blood banks and methadone clinics and Mother Waddle's perpetual mission. Returning to Detroit from bright climes usually depressed me, but now I welcomed it. The blight eased my, the pain of my father's death, making it seem like a general state of affairs. At least the city didn't mock my grief by being sparkling or winsome. Downtown looked the same, only emptier. You couldn't knock down the skyscrapers when the tenants left, so instead boards went up over the windows and doors, and the great shells of commerce were put in cold storage. On the riverfront, the Renaissance Center was being built, inaugurating a renaissance that has never arrived. Let's go through Greektown, I said. Again, my brother humored me. 
Soon we came down the block of restaurants and souvenir stores. Amid the ethnic kitsch, there were still a few authentic coffee houses patronized by old men in their seventies and eighties. Some were already up this morning, drinking coffee, playing backgammon, and reading the Greek newspapers. When these old men died, the coffee houses would suffer and finally close. Little by little, the restaurants on the block would suffer too, their awnings getting ripped, the big yellow light bulbs on the Lycon Marquis burning out, the Greek bakery on the corner being taken over by South Yemenis from Dearborn. But all that hadn't happened yet. On Monroe Street, we passed the Grecian Gardens, where we had held Lefty's Macaria. Are we having a Macaria for Dad? I asked. Yeah, my brother said the whole deal. Where? At the Grecian Gardens? My brother laughed. You kidding? Nobody wanted to come down here. I like it here, I said. I love Detroit. Yeah? Well, welcome home. And welcome home to you, too. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. It's nice to be <laughs> you grew back up, home. Yeah, back home. You're living in Chicago now, uh -huh. and um, we're living in uh, Berlin before that, New York before that, San Francisco before that, but you're from Gross Point. I am. I was born in Indian Village in Detroit and then grew up mainly in Gross Point. Okay. And you've set both your books, uh, well, Middlesex starts out in Asia Minor and lands, mm -hmm. in, well, and en ends in Berlin, but uh, most of the time Mainly about Detroit, in, in correct, Detroit. Yeah. Um, you've chosen Detroit as a laboratory for your work. Um, is it because it's home, or um, is it because it's fascinating? I think you've called it a, a great site for American ingenuity and American cultural production, industrial might versus industrial decay. I mean, you've got all kinds of great stuff to say about Detroit, and in fact, the decayed grandeur that is Detroit currently is um, startling. So it was looking. It was actually looking sort of good on this trip through to me. I went, um, drove around. I did a reading at Marygrove College the other night and uh, had had my um, my host there drive me around downtown and down Michigan Avenue. And it was to me looking better than it ha than it has looked. Though he was still being rather sli slightly sour about 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 things. There's so many people. Um, who are obsessed, have this obsession with Detroit. And there are these, I was learning more and more this weekend about the sites. There's a great site apparently called the, the Fabulous Ruins of Detroit. And there's kind of a cult of people who um, are, are attracted to, you know, the difficulties of Detroit and the, diffi the difficult city that Detroit is. And I, I'm one of them. There's, there's millions of them. But not so many of them putting work on the page. Well, I don't know. Are there? Or are there? Are there? Are there more folks taking on Detroit as um, a as a set? For well, there are some. I mean, there's not. It's true. It's not. There's not too many novels about Detroit. So it's it was, it's open territory f for me. I mean, why do you ask why I write about the city? It, one reason is obviously it's my hometown. It's the place I feel most strongly about, and and the place I feel like I I know or I have a kind of emotional attachment to it that is immediate always and also it is an amazing city the things that have come out of of Detroit culturally musically have have gone over the whole world and um a lot of the main realities of american life um are are to be found in detroit the beginning of the assembly line the, the industrial might that made america rich the then you know the the rust belt um aftermath of all that and then the, the the racial inequalities and the racial tensions that have bedeviled um, 
American history, but found, um, s- you know, certainly very vivid um, expression in in Detroit in the 20th century. I mean, there were riots in 43, the big riot in 67, and these things go all the way through Detroit and, and through America. So if you write about if you write about Detroit, you are writing about America and writing about the centrality of America, and that's that's why I've chosen to do it. I believe you said also in that Powell's interview I referenced in the first part of the show, when you were living in Detroit and around around 2002, um, I think it's always good to be outside of your country if you want to see it more clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, will you talk a little bit about that, um, the need for distance and perspective? And do you, you haven't lived in Detroit now for quite a while. Quite a while. I mean, that comes from that old Tom Waits song. He's probably, he's probably referencing someone else, but... He, Never saw my hometown till I stayed away too long, and you know, that always—I didn't know what that meant until I finally lived in Europe for five years. And um, you, you do get a perspective on your country and what Americans are like, and hence what you are like um, by by being outside for a while. And are you compelled to sort of explain and figure that out? Is that sort of where the fodder comes from, or um, is it something else? Uh, for for example. If living in Berlin, um, why not write Berlin? Or living in Chicago, where you live now, why not write Chicago? Um, well, I'm, I may, I may um, do that. I, I have a terrible lag time, it seems, in, in my experience, and then, and then my ability to write about it. So I'm, I'm now in my new book writing about my college years, or people, you know, in going to college when I went to college, and um, little by little, I, I may get up to write about Berlin. I'd love to do a novel about Berlin, um, but it'll probably be in a, you know, a number of years until I can really think back. My Most of my work is really imbued with a sense of nostalgia and, and, and deep memory, and so the, the, the material has to be in the past for me to deal with it so far, so far. You've mentioned several times throughout the interview um, sort of hints at where the work comes from, and um, you mentioned, in fact, that there is one little um, sort of um, autobiographical anecdote, the, the Artie Shaw that mm-hmm. comes to your mm-hmm. dad mm-hmm. really did woo your mother with the clarinet, and there's a scene in here when Cal's parents are getting together over the clarinet. Um, and this is a question that comes up all the time in fiction. Well, is it really fiction, or mm-hmm. is it just thinly disguised autobiography? And so I'm going to ask it, um, even though it's one yeah, well, it's a question that kind of annoys me. But no, it's a you know it's a good one, and it helps me to lead my life if I can establish how fictional, in fact, Middlesex is. I mean, it, the, the story is completely invented. The the grandparents were were not brother and sister. My grandparents were not. The grandparents in the book are. Um, the the story of the intersex narrator is one I had to imagine, and pretty much everything that happens in the book is made up, but I use lots of details from my own life in order to ground it into in a, in a reality so that I can imagine it, and that's what that's what writers do. You, you you take the stuff of your life and you use it to invent something else, and in fact, this is what everyone does, and the 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 so-called rage for the memoir now is 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 self-imploding because it's becoming quite obvious that most memoirists are also inventing their lives with referencing talking about the the James Fry controversy and now you have uh, Augustine Burroughs in his new books sort of stepping away from saying that they're true stories and that that they're something else and if you're a fiction writer and you read those memoirs you know that the person is making it up because you can't have the the recall of your um, younger l- life in in that detail, with where the scenes are 
completely recorded and what what someone said when you were five. You know, you know that people are making it up. And the rage of the memoir, it seems to me, people want to have an authentic story. They want to know that it's true. But all the memoirs that people like, most of those are actually semi-fictional. So what people like in those in those memoirs is actually the novelistic part. What people really like is what the novelists are doing, and and they're just trying to call it call it something else. Do you think that there is um, an explanation for why folks want the authentic, authentic? real as opposed to the invented fiction? It's, it's, like it's natural to a certain extent to want to know if a story is true. It seems, you know, it, it seems more amazing if it, if it's true. But oddly, what what people really want is an interesting story, and usually most people's lives um, are not are not that interesting and not that dramatic, and so that's why the novel came into existence, and that's why it's flourished and, and will continue to. And people just have to remember that, um, you know, there's there is a reality about imaginary fiction that is, that is actually very central to their own to their own psyches. Well, and you've said that there's a whole bunch of work going on now, um, in particular, and to understand the brain. Um, one, we now have the science that will, will allow us to do this, but there's mm-hmm. also, with an aging population and issues like Alzheimer's and stuff, there's a, a lot of um, Im- imperative to try and figure out what the brain is. And I believe you said that more than science, art can map consciousness and sort of help us understand the brain. Um, I th- is that... I think I said, um, and I know it's not—it's not my own idea. It's—it's it's one that um, I read. The, the idea was that there is no better record for human consciousness than than literature, the history of literature. If you had um, space aliens come down and they—they they wanted to find out what our species was like, the best thing they could do would be to start with Gilgamesh and and and, and read world literature up up till now that that's really the, the the record of the human mind and the human emotion and that that is you know that's incredibly important you couldn't you could take apart the brain and look at it uh, they could they could dissect our brains but they would know more about us if actually they read world literature i think and would that now have to include um the so-called non-fiction <laughs> of the memoir i don't think the space aliens will be reading uh james fry but perhaps <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's about all we have time <laughs> for. <laughs> Although, tell us about uh, allergies and love affairs in grad school. <laughs> we have time for that? We no. have time for one little part. Oh, well. Anecdote. Now, we were talking before. Um, this is what happens when you come early to the to the session. Never, never talk We were early. talking, <laughs> Ashley and I, I bet apparently we're at Stanford at the same time, and uh, I said that I did know another poet there who it turns out was... Um, literally allergic to me which you know it would actually be helpful if if you met someone and they were allergic to you on the first date you would know it wasn't going to work out it wasn't going to work if you're, out. if you're having dinner with someone and they're suddenly covered with hives don't go, don't take the date further that's, that's all <laughs> i have to say that's the advice of the day from jeff eugenides pulitzer prize winning author of middlesex and the virgin suicides thanks so much for joining us thank today. you thank you it's a pleasure to have you and you're reading tomorrow night uh, I'm, a I'm lecturing tomorrow night on on middlesex how i wrote it the difficulties of, of writing it and and um, some strange occurrences that that happened to me during the during the composition and that's at five o'clock um, I believe in the afternoon, and there are posters all over town. Yes, and I don't have a black eye, though. I do appear to have a black eye in the posters. Okay, yeah. so look for the man on the stage without the black eye. Yes. <laughs>
Thanks very much for tuning into the Living Writers Show today. My name is Ashley David. My guest again has been Jeffrey Eugenides. Thank you to Chaz Barrett, our engineer, and thank you to you listeners for tuning in. Next is the sports report, and I believe next week on the Living Writers Show we'll have Michelle Orange. So please stay tuned to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. <laughs>